It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the shade of an oak tree, the revolutionaries stopped for a picnic. Buoyant from their victory over the British at the Battle of Monmouth, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton enjoyed a spread of cold ham, tongue and biscuits. As they tucked in, they marvelled at the sight and sounds of a roaring waterfall, the Great Falls of the Passaic River. A decade or so later, Hamilton, now Treasury Secretary, was determined that America should become an industrial power. To spark this, he planned to build what he called a national manufactory, a city of factories, businesses and the workers to staff them. He remembered the waterfall where he and Washington had picnicked and bought 700 acres of land around it. This would become the city of Patterson, New Jersey, many of its factories powered by the Great Falls. Hamilton's creation of Patterson was an early example of place-based policy, directing government funds towards a specific location. Now the Biden administration is using a similar approach as it tries to reinvigorate American manufacturing. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can this government revive bits of America that have been left behind? Every administration heralds its commitment to investing in America. It's a core tenet of Joe Biden's economic strategy, and as part of this, his government is embracing a place-based industrial policy. This explicitly directs tens of billions of dollars to boost manufacturing in struggling regions. The bet is that the money will leave thriving economies and grateful Democratic voters in its wake. What exactly are place-based policies? And can they help boost American manufacturing? With me this week to discuss whether the federal government can revive left-behind bits of America and whether it should are Charlotte Howard in New York and John Fasman, who's also in New York. John Fasman, it's nice to have you back on the pod. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's great to be back. How's your summer been so far? Summer has been lovely. We had a wonderful week disconnected from the world in Maine. This weekend, I'm going to the Poconos with some very, very old friends and their families. So it's been lovely. And Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in your bit of New York? I'm doing well, largely because John Fassman brought in a chocolate cake this morning. Let me make a brief point of order. It was not a chocolate cake. It's a Maine gingerbread cake, which means gingerbread made with pepper, mustard, and coffee. Huh. How did you enjoy your mustard cake? Charlotte. <laughs> no, I've not eaten it yet. The anticipation of it is carrying me through the recording of this podcast, but mustard in cake. I'm a big mustard person, but I've not had it in cake it's a, before. It's not uh, liquid hmm. mustard. It's some powdered dry mustard used as a spice. Got it. 
Well, when John Fasman isn't busy making mustard-based cakes, he's been reporting for the podcast and for The Economist about place-based policies, which is sort of wonk-speak for whether it's possible for the government to revive left-behind places in America with targeted investment. So, Fasman, part of your reporting for this piece and for the podcast was based around a trip you took with Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents a California district. And you were talking to him about the current administration's approach to place-based policy. But before we get there, let's take a little bit of time to look at when these sorts of policies have been used before and how well they work. Yeah, to get a sense of those two questions, I talked to Mark Murrow, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and a longtime booster of this place-based policy approach. This is often seen as a corrective to geographical divergence and the sort of effects of agglomeration within the U.S. And Mark told me a bit more about that. One problem that emerged in the last decade of the United States and accelerated in the 2010s rather than slowed is the pull-away of tech-charged superstar cities with huge agglomerations of technology-based economic activity that began to grow at an accelerate pace, while much of the rest of the country kind of went sideways or even began to fall backwards. This is a fundamental problem. I think it's inherent in technology economies that operate on big platforms, huge returns to early mover status and network economies. But whatever the reason is, We've seen this massive pull away of often coastal places from the rest of the country. This has been viewed in some ways as an insoluble problem for a while. But I think also in the last five to seven years, significant economists have begun to agree that one could counter some of this by especially making substantial investments in promising places in the rest of the country. And that's been... I think an important rationale for not just industrial policy, but place-based industrial policy. Can you give me a simple definition of place-based policy? What is it? Yeah, place-based policies, the ones that have a particular focus on particular places. So they intentionally try to get at the root of problems So in this sense, targeting specific location and detail of a market problem or getting the civics right in a local place. So that's the difference, that they're very heavily place-specific. Can you give me a short history of how and where these policies have been tried in America? Really, it's been hard over time to separate industrial strategy in general from place-based variants of it. An industrial strategy might invest heavily, say, in research with no particular regard to local places. But going back to Hamilton in the United States, these strategies have often come to ground in particular places, and their architects have often seen that as a virtue. So if we think of something like the industrial buildup before World War II and during World War II in the United States, or even the space race, which created so-called space cities that had longstanding economic vitality in future years after that. Those are often either deliberately or unwittingly highly place-based. The TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, is another one which had a specific focus on many counties in the South. 
through electrification and infrastructure. That was intentionally place-based. Mark, you mentioned the space race as an example of early place-based policy. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, if you look at the emergence of the Sun Belt, a significant part of that was driven by substantial space technology investments into universities and other research centers to drive development of technologies needed for exploration of space. So frequently, places like Houston, cities in Florida, received strong investments for a decade that really kicked off the beginnings of the R&D base of those places. And recent research has shown that there's been a substantial follow-on effect even when immediate space race investments tailed off. So this is an example of the trajectory of places being nudged onto a different trajectory by strong place-oriented federal investments, especially here in R&D. Where has this approach worked and where has it not? And is there anything that can be learned from those successes and failures about what makes successful place-based policy? I think we've learned a number of things. First, investments with a focus in particular places, often anchored by strong education and universities, have a very good record. Think uh, the Research Triangle, for instance, which has been instrumental in kickstarting the North Carolina economy. Bottom-up program design is important, but with guidance for particular directional, strong local, not just funding coming to local actors, but local design is an important way to get variety, to get diversity across places. And then making sure that governance is outstanding and efficient. I think that is a current topic in the air now. Can regional execution be enhanced by sophisticated nimble and independent governance and local management. But those are, I think, three of the key takeaways that have been emerging. So, Charlotte, as Mark Murrow made clear there in the interview with John, police-based policy, the idea of government directing investment to particular places to try and give them a boost, is something that the federal government's tried a bunch of times before. Why are we talking about this now? We're talking about it now because it's a really big component of Biden's general economic strategy. So if you think about it, there are two big prongs of it. One is to increase tariffs and restrictions to reduce dependence on China, which is something that we write about very well in this week's cover. And then he's paired that with really big investments at home in manufacturing and in research and infrastructure. And it's been about a year since he passed these big bills, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot for green manufacturing. And Biden just this week has been out and about, and his staff have been out and about in different states, trying to tout those investments to show off his economic record. And so the question is whether they work. And John, what exactly is the problem that they're trying to fix here in 2023? The problem that they're trying to tackle, and we'll hear from Ro Khanna about this later in the show, is the problem of divergence of economic opportunity. If you think back 40 or 50 years, New York was, of course, bustling and wealthy, 
Los Angeles had film industry, San Francisco had its own industries, but you also had a thriving steel sector in Western Pennsylvania, and you had car manufacturing in Detroit. And what's happened over the past 40 years as our manufacturing base has withered is that the coasts have left the internal part of the country pretty far behind. Obviously, it's a gross oversimplification. You have some thriving cities in the center of the country and not everywhere on the coast is wealthy. But basically, it's this problem that cities that have done well have continued to do well and thrive and other places have been left behind. So this is an attempt to correct that problem. Yeah, and John, I suppose there are the sort of more obvious examples of place-based industrial policy, which we'll get to in a bit when we're discussing in more granular detail what the Biden admin is doing. But there are also some less obvious ones, right? Like the Department of Defense does a huge amount of defense procurement that works on kind of place-based principles, i.e. congressmen in particularly important districts tend to find that they have factories that make bits of kit for the military in their district. And that's all spread around according to those principles. But there's also been, as we touched on already, quite a lot of examples in American history of this kind of thing. So could you give us a sort of potted guide to that? The question of where these policies work and what makes them work is a really good one. There's a paper from the San Francisco Fed a few years back that said that the sort of more traditional place-based tax incentive direction, things like enterprise zones, where you give tax breaks to businesses to hire locally, those don't seem to create too many jobs. The things that do are subsidies to particular firms, infrastructure spending in particular regions. Those seem to have lasting effects. And I strongly suspect that a bunch of people in the Biden administration read that paper because that's what their targeting looks like broadly right now. Yeah, just to add to that, there's so many examples of places this hasn't worked. The big subsidies to bring companies to particular places, big public investments in stadiums. How you define place-based policy is a bit of an art. You could say that any tax incentives are a place-based policy, or you could say that distributing pork, those are place-based policies, right? I think the ones that are most interesting to me are those that are linked to long-term investments. And in the past, it's often been tied to national security or innovation. So the space race, you had the creation of national labs, beginning with the Manhattan Project, which of course was a defense project, which was eventually transferred to civilian operation and expanded through the Cold War so that those labs could be on the edge of nuclear science and energy in general after the energy crisis in the 1970s. So those are place-based policies. Land-grant colleges, you know, Lincoln gave federal land to states for them to sell and build colleges on. Those, again, that's an investment that was tied to long-term innovation. Those colleges were supposed to support science, farming, that kind of thing, in contrast to liberal arts colleges. And those universities include many public universities, but also MIT, Cornell, Tuskegee. So I think that there are examples of this that really work well and many examples that don't. And the Biden administration now is trying something on a very big scale that is both designed to enhance America's economic security to create jobs and hopefully win Democrats' votes. And it's not clear that it will succeed on any one of those three metrics. So that's why it's worth discussing today. That's right. And we'll look at some of the details of what the administration is trying to do in this area in a minute. 
But before we get there, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. It's because of our subscribers that we can do all of the reporting and the writing and the podcasting that we do here at The Economist. If you do subscribe, you'll get access to all of our journalism and, drumroll, subscribers can also now find all our podcasts in one place using the new podcast tab on The Economist app. So if you have The Economist app downloaded on your phone, then go to the podcast tab and it's a really easy way to listen to Checks and Balance, Money Talks, The Intelligence, and all the rest of our podcasts here. Do please check it out. That's a feature we've just built and rolled out. Charlotte and John, what have you particularly enjoyed reading or listening to from our coverage lately that subscribers would be able to enjoy too? I would really recommend our big package on decoupling, which is in this week's paper. It is led by Mike Bird of Money Talks fame. I also recommend Money Talks, of course, to all listeners, but it really looks critically at whether America's attempts to decouple from China are having the desired effect. So I think people who think both about America's economic security and national security would be well served by reading it. I love this week's Babbage. I mean, Babbage is our science podcast. It's always good. This past week, our brilliant colleague Natasha Loder talked to Blondie's drummer, Clem Burke about how drumming can help people with autism. I thought it was a fascinating discussion. Well, I second those recommendations. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash US pod. We've talked a little bit already about what place-based policies are trying to achieve. And now we're going to turn in a little more detail and look at what the Biden administration is actually doing right now. So, John, you've been reporting and writing on this. So I'm going to hand over to you at this point. Yeah, I spent a few days recently with Ro Khanna. He represents part of Silicon Valley in Congress. But when I was with him, he was traveling through some former manufacturing towns in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania. And he was there to hear people talk about how job losses at factories had affected their communities. And of course, this is not a new phenomenon. The decline started decades ago. But I thought it was worth tagging along first because Kana is a really interesting politician. And we'll hear more from him later on in the show. But also because when we're thinking about place-based policy, it's worth understanding what's actually happening in those places that are being targeted. I listened in to Congressman Kana's conversations. And just to warn our listeners, this report does contain a brief mention of suicide. And I guess when you hear national politicians or others say unemployment is 3.8 percent or say it doesn't mean anything here, right? I mean, I, it, it, the jobs, the good jobs are not. Sustainable wage is the big thing. Yeah. We got to have a guaranteed pension. The younger people don't even know what a guaranteed pension is. On the outskirts of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a good couple dozen former factory workers from steel plants, rail yards, and car makers along with their relatives, packed into the back room of a Panera. They were there to tell Congressman Kana what life has been like there over the past few decades. And even the jobs that are here are probably not the jobs that can support a family where you could buy a house. The wage is still seven twenty-five an hour here. And a lot of people are working two or three jobs, part-time jobs. That's how they're making it. A guy we'd had lunch with a few hours earlier at a bar in downtown Johnstown said that it used to be a vibrant and safe area. It's now neither. And if you need proof that things are still declining, said Tim Toynstra, a union rep, take a look at one nearby school district. Their incoming kindergarten class is 17 kids. 
That's not 17 kids per classroom. That's like the class of 2036. And it's specifically because when the, in their case, the mine jobs that have disappeared over the last 20, 30 years, probably longer. The graduating class this year was 38. So it wasn't huge to begin with, but the younger people leave. Tim later pointed out that there are cities all over America with bars for fans of Pittsburgh's NFL team, the Steelers. That's not because people thousands of miles away suddenly decided they loved the black and gold. It's because so many people have emigrated from western Pennsylvania. They're in uh, Tennessee. They're in Indiana. They're in Missouri. They're in Michigan. People have also left the city of Warren, about two and a half hours drive northwest of Johnstown, across the border in Ohio. These are our friends. And how, how long did they have to decide when they got the notice that they... They didn't have... It wasn't very long. Yeah, maybe... When a plant closes, it's not just that people have to find new jobs. That's hard enough. These plants often employed hundreds of people in small towns and paid well. But there's also a ripple effect that includes displacement, marriage woes, substance abuse, and worse. We had a young man that transferred. He got sent to Missouri. This young man, it's sad, very sad. He was one of them guys that helped everybody. When he passed away, he killed himself out in Missouri. Killed himself? Yeah. And he, from the pressure of moving and everything. It may seem odd that Silicon Valley's congressman is wandering around left-behind areas on the other side of the country, but Ro Khanna says he wants to work out how to help struggling towns catch up, and that involves changing an industrial policy that has let them down. Those workers were wronged. It was very clear to me they were wronged. Or in Warren, Ohio, where we met Lordstown workers, they were wronged. And they know they've been wronged. They know they've been shafted. The job loss was not just economic. It was about people's families, communities. It was heartbreaking to hear. And these stories are fresh on people's minds 15 years later. That's the trauma that was inflicted on these communities. But when he and the Biden administration talk about bringing American manufacturing back, they're asking people to believe in yet another promise they've heard before. The the president's efforts to bring back manufacturing or battery manufacturing, how much of a difference has it made here in this area, bluntly, and how much do people think he's really trying to bring manufacturing back? Which which person are you talking about? Biden. Biden. It's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, you can talk about something, and I'm sure President Biden is trying, but there are road bumps to what he's trying to get done, and you're not going to bring manufacturing back. And I love Joe Biden. I love Joe Biden. I mean, I've supported him for years. I mean, again, he's just a nice, nice man. But the people in this area are just tired of people making promises and then forgetting about those promises. And in four years, guess what? They're back again for another vote. John, so some skepticism there coming from the people whom these policies are designed to help. Can you run through in a bit more detail what it is that the administration is trying here? 
Yeah, so the administration has about $80 billion earmarked for various place-based industrial policies. The biggest chunk of that is through the CHIPS Act to provide funding to incentivize building facilities to basically create an American semiconductor industry. You've also got about $10 billion to create regional tech and innovation hubs, a little less than that to create clean hydrogen hubs, a little less than that to create innovation engines that are energy-related. So you've got all this money essentially going to create a clean energy industry and economy, and it is being targeted at places that have been left behind. So a number of these grants, you have to come from a place that has been sort of judged to have been left behind. Other funding goes to clean up brownfields projects, so that's old industrial areas. There's also this program called the Recompete Pilot Program, where the government gives away block grants of around $20 million to what they call persistently distressed communities to create good jobs. So there's a real focus on where this money is going, and I think a sincere effort to want to help these places that have been left behind. Yeah, I'm interested in some of the policies that go beyond just semiconductors, too, because the CHIPS Act has money for regional innovation hubs. There is money for hydrogen hubs, clean hydrogen hubs. And so you see a lot of different places bidding for this cash. And the question is whether they will work. And a big part of that is whether you have human capital to match the public capital. So essentially what you're doing with these policies is trying to have government cash do what the private markets have not. And there's a lot that government cash can do, particularly in helping to build stuff. But the government historically has not been that good when it comes to human capital. So in other words, helping to make sure that there are the workers with the right skills to support the long-term growth that the administration seeks. I have a question for both of you guys. What is the test here? Because it seems unreasonable or unrealistic to expect all of these government investments to pay off. Right. The government's trying to do something really hard here, which is work against the grain of the market. And there are, as we said already, plenty of examples of this kind of policy not working in the past. So, I mean, a few that spring to mind. Pennsylvania spent about $6 billion, a bit over $6 billion between 2007 and 2016 on corporate subsidies. A lot of that went to sort of depressed northeastern bits of the state, which are not doing a whole load better now. California has 42 enterprise zones which haven't raised employment in the targeted areas, according to a paper published by a couple of researchers at the University of California at Irvine. But I wonder if it's almost too unfair to just pick the examples where where it hasn't worked, because almost it should be surprising if this stuff works at all. So my question to you guys really is, what should the test of these policies be? I actually asked that precise question to Brian Deese, who at the time was the head of Biden's National Economic Council. I asked him that earlier this year. And he was interesting on it. I mean, there are a few metrics. I asked him what the metrics were for success. And there were a few things, right? I mean, first he said that the administration's policies are unapologetically place-based. They're very explicit about what they're trying to do. And he was interested in a few different things. I mean, it was in decarbonization, in long-term productivity growth. They talk a lot, as does Janet Yellen, about expanding the long-term productive potential of America's economy. So that's kind of a nebulous thing, actually, but it is one goal of these. And then job creation is absolutely part of this. And you see that 
the Biden administration trying to be more forceful in communicating that, right, as they go around and start trying to tout the benefits of these policies. So one important question for the Biden administration is when these benefits will appear and whether the American people will register any benefit as being meaningful to them in a way that affects their vote. Yeah, I think the Biden administration is probably hoping for some near-term political benefits in 2024. But the ultimate question, whether they work, you won't be able to judge that for years, decades even. Yes, that's right. There's a long-term one and a very short-term. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear some more from Congressman Ro Khanna and also to discuss whether these policies will help Joe Biden's re-election effort. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going to go back to Congressman Ro Khanna now. And John, could you begin by explaining to us why exactly a congressman from California and a particularly prosperous part of California at that Silicon Valley, is hanging around in Appalachia? I think there are two main reasons. One has to do with his political ambitions, which I think are sizable, and we'll get into later in the interview. But Congressman Khanna also says that the vast wealth generated in districts like the one he represents, which covers Silicon Valley, can be used to drive growth in poorer places on the other side of the country. There is a broader responsibility, and that is to provide the engines of economic prosperity of wealth generation. I mean, I'm sitting in a district that has $10 trillion of wealth. I have to add a company in my list of descriptors every six months. And there's this understanding that technology is critical to not just the opportunities to have a middle-class life, but is also critical to a manufacturing renaissance, to becoming a manufacturing superpower again that we will not be able to compete with industries around the world with cheaper labor without extraordinary technology. And so in both of those senses, I think Silicon Valley has a responsibility. But of course, I don't think they should have an attitude as saviors. They should have an attitude of being partners with other parts of the country that also have a lot to offer. Ultimately, we need smart government policy to really mobilize the country. What it seems you're talking about is a sort of industrial policy, a dirigist policy that we've been reluctant to pursue for the past 50 years. Do you think those 50 years have been a mistake, the argument that you basically let capital go where it wants and workers will figure out other jobs? And if a textile factory moves overseas because it's cheaper to produce stuff there, that's good for consumers on the whole. Workers are also consumers. They'll benefit from cheaper prices. That was the big argument. Do you think that's a mistaken argument that has been proven wrong? Yes, it was wrong. And while you need the free movement of capital for a dynamic economy, and that is one of America's strengths, the balance is off. You also need place-based policies that build a nation's productive capacity. Can there be a balance where we allow for 
capital to move freely to the next entrepreneur, the next innovative technology. But we also say there are certain priorities of the government to build a productive base in this nation to make sure that every community, every congressional district has economic opportunity. And when it comes to that, the government is going to partner to create that. Absolutely. And in my view, that is the Hamilton tradition. That is the Lincoln tradition. That is the Roosevelt tradition. It is one which embraces free enterprise, but has the government also as an active partner in steering investment to be productive. So tell me about the policy drivers that get us from here to there. Like, it seems like you're talking about a sort of Goldilocks policy. There's too little control over, too little industrial policy has led us to where we are. Too much would make us like China and planned economy. What's the right amount and what are the particular policies that get us there? So I call it a new economic patriotism. I think the companies should be privately owned. I think there has to be a partnership with local governments and local communities. And I think government should be a partner, not in any way a planner. And the government's role should be to assist with financing for scaling and to assist with coordination. Let me give you three concrete examples. First, we need to put a modern steel factory in places like Johnstown. I mean, think about what that would say to the nation. It's, it's, it's surprising to me we haven't done that over 40 years. People say, well, how can you do that? That's promising unicorns. That's not possible. And I say, look at the CHIPS Act, which I helped co-write. We've got Intel factories of semiconductors going to Columbus, Ohio. We can do this. We know that we've had success with the CHIPS Act. So why not for steel, which it will be cleaner with electric furnaces as opposed to blast furnaces that are being used in China, which could use hydrogen, which would be even cleaner, which is going to be necessary for our national security. So it's something that it's good to be making here. That would be one concrete policy. Two, make sure if the government is providing financing that the workers benefit. I mean, look, the electric vehicle industry is a nationally subsidized industry. We have collectively decided as a country that that is important. Well, then we have to look at the lesson of FDR. If we're going to finance things through the government and taxpayers, the workers need to have their fair share. They shouldn't be a situation where they're getting half the wages that they did in the auto plants. There shouldn't be a situation where they don't have the right to organize. A final point, it can't just be supply-side policy. It's going to be demand-side policy. If we build these factories and then we've got no Buy American policy or no policy of government purchasing or no policy of having certain strategic tariffs to make sure that there's price parity in a major industry or no policy of export-import bag financing foreign buyers, then you're not going to be sustainable. So it's got to be both demand and supply-side policy. I want to shift in this part of the interview and talk a bit about the politics. One of the things you said that struck me, this is in a meeting in, in Warren, is you said, look, you guys may not all agree with me on choice, on guns, on LGBTQ rights, but we need to have a sense that we're all in this together. Your argument, your sort of overriding argument, is that economic shared interests will overcome these cultural divides and will lead to political victories over sort of culture war politics. The other side gets a vote too. Do you worry that this is naive? And one of the guys, I don't know if you remember, he said to me in response, that's right, bro, we need more moderates in politics. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a progressive Democrat and I'm a proud progressive Democrat. And then I understood what he was saying. He was defining moderate as, are you focused on the thing that is going to matter most to me and my family? Are you focused on helping me get a better wage? Are you focused on helping me get new jobs? Are you focused on me being able to get health care? And that to me 
is some of the disconnect with the Democratic Party. They don't see us fighting for them. They don't see us fighting for the issues that have wronged them that are most central on their mind. And so I think speaking to those issues while being firm in our convictions on our social issues gives us a shot to start to win back some of these communities and bring this country together post-Trump. And the political purpose of this trip, you've spoken a number of times. You've asked, what could the president be saying? Is his message getting through? I know you're on his, his re-election committee. The information you're gathering here goes back to him and his campaign. This is part of the purpose of your trip is to sort of help President Biden figure out how to campaign. The primary purpose is to figure out from people on the ground what we need to be doing for those areas and how we can improve their lives. But of course, the secondary purpose is to see whether what the president and we've been doing in Congress is resonating. And there, I think the president has broken through on saying that he understands the importance of manufacturing and he understands the importance of unions. But I think where there needs to be more of a focus is that these policies aren't just enriching the big cities in Columbus and Pittsburgh, places that tend to be blue anyway, and that they're going to the factory towns, to the rural areas, to the communities that were most devastated. And I think we have to do a better job of communicating and doing. But to me, there are three pillars of a Democratic Party message and focus should be bring new industries and good paying jobs, make sure that workers are getting a fair wage, that they can support a family, and make sure that everyone has health care. I actually think those three issues can make Democrats competitive in Lordstown and Warren and Ashtabula and Johnstown and in a lot of areas that used to be blue. Let me ask one last question. If I were to describe this trip to you and take your name out of it, there's a young, thoughtful, ambitious congressman from California spending a lot of time in swing states and rural areas, you would probably say that sounds a lot like an early stage presidential campaign. Is that an ambition that you have? Are you thinking about that as you do this? Well, certainly right now, I'm 100% for President Biden. I genuinely believe that he would be a better candidate to defeat Donald Trump than anyone in the Democratic field or in Congress or the Senate. I include myself. But you're 46 years old. Let's talk about... But the future... I believe I have the right vision and can bridge the progressive wing of the party focused on economic dignity and economic rights with the wing of the party focused on creating new jobs. Now, whether I am the right messenger for that or not, I think remains to be seen. Charlotte, I found that interview really interesting, particularly his diagnosis of what's ailing America's economy and some of the bits about Buy American that sounded quite America firsty, although he's very far from there politically. What, what did you think of it? Yeah, I thought that the economic nationalism was really interesting and not a position that, candidly, I support. And I also think saying that the CHIPS Act has been a success is not quite right yet. It feels too soon for that. I think the broader question of economic nationalism is a really interesting one because I do think that there's a role for public investment, particularly in innovation. There is a role for public investment in the energy transition, absolutely, to accelerate that because the private market by no means will do so at the scale or speed required. But, you know, when Trump in his campaign was bullying Carrier, which was a company in Indiana for potentially creating jobs, 
outside of the U.S., we, as a paper, frowned on that, and I think that was really bad. You can't have presidents bullying companies for moving jobs here or there. It is counterproductive, not just in the long term, but in the short term for a company's long-term viability. So I think it would be disingenuous to say that all economic nationalism is a good thing. It sounds like in theory it might be, but in practice it's very, very different. And I think you can't pursue that policy in a purest manner and get the results that's desired. John, I want to ask you a question about the politics of this. There is a view that the Democratic Party is doing badly with working-class voters, which is objectively true. The party really is. There's a view that that's because the party was too relaxed about the effects of globalization and didn't stick enough to its kind of mid-20th century model of, you know, kind of strong unions and protectionism. And that that's a thesis that's associated with Thomas Frank, who wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas, which was published about 20 years ago. And Rokhana seems to be in that camp, as far as I can tell. There's also another camp which says, listen, Democrats do badly with working-class Americans because they are now the party of college-educated America and they seem culturally alien and a bit weird and lots of working-class Americans doubt whether they're patriotic at all. Which of those do you think is right? And did you put that to Rokhana? I'm just interested to know whether my characterization of his view is kind of unfair. I didn't put that to Rokhana. But I think I sort of saw how it worked in action. Congressman Khanna is, I think, 46 years old. He went to the University of Chicago and Yale and now represents Silicon Valley. He is 100 percent, to the extent that the Democrats have become a party of college-educated people, he is the poster child for that. On the other hand, he is also easy to talk to. He listens. He's curious. And so I think the Democrats have to do a lot more showing up to overcome that barrier. The political question that springs to mind from that interview that I think still has to be answered is this. Let's say that this sort of economic nationalism does become dogma in the Democratic Party. It is also, to a greater or lesser extent, dogma in the Republican Party, right? It's not just that you have governors in southern states who want factories to move there. It's that you have people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance and Marco Rubio sounding a lot like Ro Khanna in the sense that they think that the past 40 years of free market economic orthodoxy have been wrong, have left these workers behind. If that becomes a point of convergence between the two parties, then you're right back to the culture war, because that is the point of difference, and that's where it's going to be fought. So I think his analysis that there is some political ground to be gained in promoting this sort of economic nationalism, he's not wrong, but I think it may be less than he thinks it is. John, I think there's a really strong case that's exactly what's happening, that as the two parties converge on matters of economics— the cultural differences become even more important in politics. And that's a problem because they're so hard to resolve. I think that's right. And then also Trump himself, of course, becomes a huge point of difference between the parties, right? Biden is trying to take the high road when it comes to Trump's indictment. And you hear him this week talking about semiconductors rather than talking about Trump. But the truth is that his messaging, at least to date, on his economic handling has gone nowhere he has not been able to convince voters that he is an able manager of America's economy. I was interested in some recent polling from Reuters and Ipsos that about half of people who voted for Biden said they didn't know much about his big policies to reduce inflation or invest in infrastructure. People don't think that he has managed the economy very well. So Biden is trying to change that. He himself is not that great a salesman. You see other members of his administration out there trying to tout these policies as well. 
as I mentioned earlier, there are going to be some announcements coming up. For instance, the hydrogen hubs, there'll be announcements of the winners of who gets government cash this fall. So there will be news. There'll continue to be news. There'll continue to be construction projects. The question is whether Biden can harness all of that activity into a coherent message that lands with voters. I think this whole area of policy is fascinating. To my mind, there's not a whole load of doubt about whether this is the sort of thing governments should do. I'm not ideologically opposed to it. I do think there's a real practical question about whether government can do it and how much money is wasted along the way. But it seems to me that you can't just abandon whole regions of the country and just tell everyone there to move. It's also, though, you know, in the other direction, it's kind of interesting because the idea that you can prosper for a while in a place and then just move on when you've exhausted it is, to my mind, quite an American sort of frontiery sort of idea. So the fading of that idea is part of the story as well about America becoming less exceptional, about internal migration slowing, and so on. And this comes out in a lot of popular culture in America, particularly, I think, in country music. Country music's full of songs about people not wanting to leave their hometown, but realizing that there's nothing for them there anymore, or nostalgic songs about hometowns being left behind. So I think if this is something that government can do, there's definitely a constituency for it. I just think it's going to be really, really hard. And I'm sure if we look back in 10, 15 years' time, a lot of people will make a strong case that much of this money was wasted. But maybe that's okay. Maybe if it works in a few places and helps to reverse this tide, then that makes it a success. Okay, let's leave that there for now and move on to the quiz. There's going to be a hard change here because this quiz is not about place-based policies or various initiatives of the federal government. It is a quiz in honour of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, which falls around now because the roots of hip-hop can be traced to a party that took place in the Bronx on August the 11th, 1973. I'm going to read you some lyrics from some of the biggest hip-hop tracks of the past 50 years, and I want you to tell me the artist and the song. I think this could be our my final humiliation if I get these wrong. I think given your ability to work 90s hip-hop references into discussions of Donald Trump's indictment, this one is right in your wheelhouse. I'm backing you on this one. Okay, question one. I said a hip-hop, the hippie, the hippie to the hip-hip-hop <laughs> you don't stop. That's the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah. Which track? Uh, the first famous one. What is it called? I'm I mean, no, no clue what that's called. I don't know either. I, Come on, I know the track. Hippity to hip song. It's Rapper's Delight. I don't know the net. That's right. Oh, yeah, Rapper's Delight, of course, right. I think I know the words to the full 14-minute version, but I, I, won't, I won't do them here. Question two. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, and realize there's, there's nothing, nothing left. left. Yes, indeed. That was Gangster's Paradise from Coolio in 1995. Okay, quite, I think you both got that. Maybe Fassman first. Question three. Charlotte, you've got to get quicker on the buzzer here. Question three. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms That's are heavy. That's Eminem. <laughs> There's Eminem. vomit. Yeah. Which track? Loser. Mom's spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lose lose yourself. yourself. Yeah. It is. I wouldn't lose yourself. put that in the canon, yeah, by the way. But moving it's on. It's an extremely terrible moving song. On. Is it that bad? I think Maybe it is. Bad. I think there's a time and a place for Eminem. Anyway, it was Lose Yourself from 2002. That was the first hip-hop winner of the Best Original Song Oscar. Question four. Yeah, I'm out that Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to De Niro, 
but I'll be hood forever. That is definitely not a great hip hop song. That's Jay Z with New York, but Empire uh, State of Mind. Yeah, I love that song. Uh, I think that's terrible. I'd take "Lose Yourself" over that one. No, it, I that that song is disqualif- That song is disqualifying because it says "concrete jungle where dreams yeah, are made it's of." Just grammatically awful. What does that mean? But I love Alicia Keys. I love Alicia Keys. Okay, final question. These expensive. These is red bottoms. These is bloody shoes. Hit the store. I can get them both. I don't want to choose. <laughs> I don't know that one. I want it. It sounds like something that is a Cardi B song, but I don't actually know. I suspect that postdates my prime. I have no idea. Cardi B is the right answer. Charlotte, I think you've nice. just about won that quiz. Just about. I'll take it. That's as good as I get. I have found my Jeopardy category at last. 90s hip-hop for 500. Yes, it's taken us 186 episodes of the podcast to get there, but we've finally found it. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Carla Patella and James Stickland are our sound engineers. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive at economist.com slash checkspod if you'd like to do that. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Thank you to everyone who's emailed in to say you're reading along with our picks for our Summer Book Club episode. I asked a couple of weeks ago for your suggestions for a great American novel. Our listener Joao emailed us this week to recommend Dodsworth by Sinclair Lewis, which is not one I've read already, so I'm going to be adding that to the list. The Book Club episode will be out at the end of August, so you still have time to read The Age of Innocence, The Sound and the Fury, and Invisible Man. Next week, Idris will be back. He's been speaking to the top politicians on the House China Committee to find out how their work on America's reset with China is going. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. <laughs>